Good morning, everybody. Happy Wednesday. Welcome to our next virtual event here at FreightWaves. This is Supply Chain Meets Fintech, and we are so excited to welcome you in to this recent virtual event. I'm Kaylee Nix here with Karen Webster, CEO of Payments.com. Karen, we're so excited to be able to do this, and we've got a really great event on tap for everybody today. We certainly do. I'm looking forward to our keynote conversation in just a minute. But so many interesting discussions really relevant to the theme. Supply Chain Meets Fintech, how technology, payments, and the flow of data is really changing supply chain engagement and something that uh, we obviously grapple with every day, the supply chain frictions that everyone is is feeling. Absolutely. And we know that it's been been just sticking point point after sticking point after sticking point the last two years. Everybody's talking about, is there a new normal? Are we back to where things were? Are we just coming down into a normalization of everything from rates to inventories to congestion? And how is that going to affect us for the last half of 2022? And even looking ahead, I don't think anybody has a crystal ball, do they? No one has a crystal ball, including our keynote speaker. I've asked. He does not have a keynote. He does not have a crystal ball, but he gives But what's interesting is that you saw target earnings today. And one of the things that they were punished for was liquidating inventory. So I think we're seeing, you know, in earnings and what companies are dealing with every day, you know, the impact of the supply chain frictions that they've been addressing and how that affects what consumers pay and certainly the performance of businesses that have accumulated inventory over over the last several months in anticipation of perhaps not being able to get enough to sustain the the business and the sales and the consumer demand. Absolutely. So, of of course, course, financial technology, the combination of supply chain is something that our founder and CEO, Craig Fuller, is incredibly passionate about, especially at the intersection of the freight industry, Mm -hmm. which is why that he wanted to bring this virtual event forward for all of our audience and for really kind of us here at FreightWaves as well. And of course, you head payments.com. Talk to us a little bit about you bringing your expertise into the side of the industry and the why behind this event. So what's interesting is that, you know, payments has, has become a horizontal. So payments is now the, the enabler to a lot of new business opportunities, a lot of new business models, and things that um, people in the ecosystem that is freight, the movement of goods between point A and point B, um, can really take advantage of to create better economics for all parts of the ecosystem. But to think about new ways to eliminate the frictions um, create new opportunities for doing business online, um, and 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 to really capitalize on the investment capital that is out there, really available to fund fintechs who are interested in solving some of those very very complex um, problems. So I'm excited to be part of this because we bring the payments and fintech um, side of the conversation to what is obviously a very important component to our economy, which is the movement of goods from point A to point B. Absolutely. And so this is a virtual event here at FreightWaves, which if you're part of our ecosystem, you should be no stranger to. And of course, we have to have everybody head over to live.freightwaves.com to get registered. That's our virtual events platform. It's going to give you the opportunity to network with your fellow attendees, to check out some amazing demos firsthand from some of our demo groups, and also to get you a big thanks to our sponsors, which of course, we've got to say thank you to. So our headline sponsor for today is going to be Triumph Pay. We've got a title sponsor at Transcard. Our gold sponsors today are both PayCargo and Uber Freight. Shout out to Zoom for being our silver sponsor today and for Brizos for being our content sponsor. These types of events don't go on without help from our amazing sponsors. So thank you to them for continuing to support us here at FreightWaves and continuing to be a part of our ecosystem as well. 
And everybody's favorite part of a virtual event, once you get registered, you get in to win a door prize we love, for we the love day. Do- we love prizes. Oh, yeah. We love a good door prize. So today's door prize is going to be this Yeti Tundra, Tundra Hall cooler. That's going to be the Yeti cooler with the wheels and the handle. It's really efficient. Summer's coming to an end, but we've got Labor Day weekend coming up just ahead. So you know what? Get in, get registered with this cooler. If you're not on live.freightwaves.com just yet, head on over there. And of course, if you miss any of our segments today, from the keynote to the demos to any of our fireside chats, you can find those on demand on tv.freightwaves.com at any point in time. So with that, Karen, I think that we're going to go ahead and get into our keynote, I'm going to let you introduce our speaker. Great. And you guys have some really great content coming up. We really do. So it is my pleasure to introduce our keynote speaker for today, Baklav Shmuel, who is a distinguished professor, scientist, prolific author, and a really big thinker whose writings over the years have really tried to simplify the complex reality of how the world works. In fact, his latest book, How the World Really Works, The Science Behind How We Got Here and Where We're Going, starts with the four pillars that define the modern society that we live in as we know it. This book offers business leaders and entrepreneurs new insights into globalization and some of the supply chain frictions that we just spoke about. Um, Short of offering predictions, though, on where the future is headed, Professor Schmiel really arms us with all the necessary facts to draw our own conclusions. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Professor Vaclav Schmiel, who will give us the benefit of his insights today. Uh, thanks, Karen. Uh, there is so much to talk about. So what I think I will do, I'll make some brief uh, introduction uh, regarding some uh, very recent news, and then I'll let you guide me. And then, of course, we'll ask, we answer the, as many questions as we can. I thought it would be interesting to start with your latest half a trillion uh, uh, dollar thing, uh, which was just approved by uh, or signed by the president. Um, by the way, it's amazing. People talk about billionaires, the power of billionaires, Bezos and Musk. Uh, it's not Nothing. Think of Senator Manchin. He owns nothing. He owns no big company. But by doing nothing, he just swung half a trillion dollars around. Because, you know, originally the bill was over one trillion dollars and now it's about half a trillion dollars. Nevertheless, you know, this is a perfect illustration. I like to talk about stuff, about real stuff, exactly what you people are doing, moving things, uh, making things, uh, embracing things, using things. People just simply don't realize how all this is tied to their plans. So now we are told that U.S. uh, will... uh, cut down the uh, carbon dioxide equivalent emissions uh, of the year 2005 by 50% by 2030. So calculate this me. This is a very simple uh, arithmetic. So um, by 2021, the emissions already went down to about 6 billion tons from 7 billion tons. So they were cut down roughly by uh, 15%. So that's 15%, no? but uh, in 16 years. So it's roughly 1% a year, just you know, to be rough. Now they are asking uh, America, American businesses, companies, households, uh, to cut down 40% from 6 uh, billion to about 3.5 billion, which means at an annual rate of about... Uh, Five percent. So ask yourself, what has America done in past five, 10, 15 years to increase the rate of something fivefold in a year, year after year? So just on this simple thing, uh, you know, that 
to meet that uh, reduction targets by 2030, whatever you are doing, installing the wind turbines, installing photovoltaics, uh, retrofitting houses to be more energy efficient, you have to up your performance fivefold starting right now to be done by 2030. And of course, it means fivefold, in many cases, throughputs of materials. One of the big things is to retrofit houses. Well, that means uh, insulation, fiberglass, uh, triple windows, uh, better air conditioners. So all of these things should be upped fivefold in the next eight years. Uh, and of course, it has to be moved somewhere. And as, as far as the photovoltaics goes, you have to install more solar. But you don't make those solar panels. They are made mostly in China. So you have to bring them in. Well, through where? To the port of Los Angeles. I don't have to tell you people what is the problem of uh, moving something fivefold uh, to the port of Los Angeles. So it's very easy these days for many people, you know, while the theoretical uh, planners and modelers or politicians saying, oh, this is the target, we'll do that. But when you look at the reality on the ground, what it entails in terms of mass, in terms of movement, in terms of finances behind that, uh, it's it's far from simple. So this is just one example how simple algebra will tell you uh, what the uh, tremendous uh, challenges we are facing in doing something like saying, okay, 50% reduction by 2030. So, so, so Vaclav, I'd, I'd love to be able to have you explain the four pillars of modern society because I challenged people on my, my LinkedIn feed to, to guess what they are. We all think we know what the modern pillars of, of society, modern society are, but I'm not sure that we are aligned with what you believe they are. Tell us. Yeah, yeah I, think it's, 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 I think it's the deepest thing for me is that this society... Not, of course, everybody, but uh, most of the people who run the show, so to speak, um, are living in a post-factual world. They've been tremendously influenced by the development of computing science and the computing speed in past two generations. Uh, because the improvements haven't been, you know, I said fivefold. You have to improve fivefold to, to decarbonize half of America or, or 50% by society. This is nothing because our computing capabilities have for past 50 years improved by seven orders of magnitude. That is, you know, more than tens of millions of times, really. So we think we've done that. We think we can do it somewhere else as well. But, you know, we cannot improve. Forget about million. Forget about thousand. Forget about tenfold. We cannot even triple the efficiency of diesel engines, which are still the workhorse of American supply chain. Without diesels, we wouldn't have no... Uh, container ships, we would have no big trucking, we wouldn't have no uh, railway uh, transportation. And you cannot just simply say, I will improve the efficiency of my diesel engine by whatever, you know, two or threefold. We are just basically as efficient as diesels, about 50% as it can get. So the realities are so different from perceptions, which people think we can, you know, bring on our experiences. But the experiences from managing data, from sending out information, from rapid increases of computer speed, they are not applicable to the real world of moving stuff and making stuff. So, but the, but the four pillars that I, that I think are so fundamental to your premise that we underestimate yep. the reality of change are very basic. I mean, it is it's steel, yep. ammonia, yep. concrete, and plastic. It, it, yep. I, I guarantee if you asked 100 people watching this broadcast today, they would have not have guessed probably no, of course even, even, even of course one of them. So, so, so how, how is that fundamentally then tied to all the, all the issues that we're grappling with today, not, not only in the movement of goods, but obviously yeah. the flow of money and data that, that supports it? 
Well, simply you need those things. You cannot do without them. As I always tell people, we could do, it would be just horrible and I wouldn't want to experience it and we couldn't have this uh, uh, broadcast this morning, but we could totally live without computers. Let's not forget that the first microchip uh, for all for uh, Intel was put on market in 1971. So until 1971, we had no microprocessors. And by 1970, we had, you know, Boeing 747 and you could fly all around the world and make reservations on old fashioned non-microchip computers. And we had a very affluent society. America was no poor place in 1970. Um, but for all of that, we needed steel and plastics and ammonia and cement. The interstates, of course, are reinforced concrete. Uh, uh, the flying uh, couldn't happen. Or, or, the, or the basic business people do. see. When you see an airplane, it's mostly um, now composite materials or aluminum alloys. But uh, the airplane couldn't exist without the infrastructure, which is steel. Every runway you land on is a reinforced concrete with lots of steel inside uh, buried that cement. So. And of course, every car and every every uh, cooking range and uh, every high voltage pile and all of that is steel. So these things are so embedded, they are so around us. There is so much of that stuff. We don't even pay attention to it, but it's this fancy, shiny new stuff, you know, a new iPhone or whatever we pay attention to that. So this is kind of this, you know, misplaced attention. We do not pay attention to basics anymore because basics are here, they are ready, they are affordable, they are available, they are always with us. So we just simply even don't question them. And even more fundamental, this is ammonia. People don't realize that without nitrogen fertilizers, that without ammonia, we could feed only about half of the population of this earth. And the countries which are high producers, like the US and EU, they have high food productivity because they use lots of that fertilizer. And, and I think I think that's really, for, for me, one of the things that I was struck by, by, by when reading your book it, it, it's it's so hard to think about change without understanding the fundamentals of what it means to actually deliver that change. And I think about that as a corollary to the complexity of obviously supply chains, but also the complexity of changing things holistically across the supply chain and the financial supply chain that supports it. There are so many interdependencies that that really understanding what's on the critical path becomes very important in understanding what can be changed and what is going to take much longer to affect real change. Let me give you one recent example, which people are tossing around saying, oh, electric vehicles. We will decarbonize transportation by having electric vehicles. Well, not so fast, you know, because as I always tell people, there is no electric car. There is a car which runs on batteries, which is to be charged by electricity. But if I'm in my province in Manitoba in Canada, we have 100% hydroelectricity. So if I buy electric car here, it's a 100% hydroelectric car, it's green, there's no carbon. But the fastest country with the new electric vehicles, uh, fastest uh, increase in electric vehicles is in China. In China, especially in North China, most of electricity is made from burning coal. So when I move to electric car in North China, I'm no farther ahead. Instead of burning gasoline, I'm essentially quote unquote burning coal because I'm using electricity from coal combustion in big Chinese power plant. And by the way, Chinese are now building another 100 gigawatts new coal-fired power plant. So uh, let's be clear what, what is an electric car and what is not. But the point is, we'll go from few million of them as we have today to tens of millions or eventually hundreds of millions of electric cars. Where every electric car, even a small one, is 60 to 80 kilograms of copper. 
So, you know, it's uh, something like 150 pounds of copper. So you have to get that copper somewhere. And there are these biggest producers in the world, and that's Chile, and that's China. So again, it would mean more imports of that metal to the United States, more environmental degradation, more stress on the supply chain, more deficit in payments. So it's very easy to say, well, let's up the electric vehicle production, right? But where is that copper? Who will deliver it? How? And who will pay for it? And this is a trivial example. There are many other examples, of course, lithium for batteries and cobalt and uh, so on. So the it's so interwoven, it's so together, and it's now globally, because even the biggest countries, America, China, Russia, they cannot do everything, anything alone. They rely on others. And like this microchip now, we rely on Taiwan, we rely on South China. Uh, so this is not, you, you cannot affect the change rapidly. You cannot say rapidly, you know, I will do without Taiwanese microchip. I will do without Chilean copper. You just simply cannot do that. We are all tied together now. Let's me to to globalization. You devoted a chapter in your book about globalization. And you, you painted a pretty grim picture of globalization as part of our future. Um, talk a little bit about your your theory of globalization, which you say won't certainly disappear, but it will really be marginalized and minimized over over a relatively short period of time. Well, uh, let's not let's not let's not go that far. Perhaps not minimize, but certainly it's on the way. It's not on the way out, but certainly it's now a declining trend. It was even before the uh, let's say even before the pandemic, it wasn't on the upswing. We have clear data that even before the pandemic, it's been declining from about 2010 to 11. Uh, it's been declining for a decade, slowly but surely. Now, of course, as people know, uh, several very important things happened recently. One is that after decades of kind of, you know, being uh, not quite friend, but certainly not a foe, that America's stance against China has changed substantially. Uh, even the democratic administration sees China as a major, major competitor, if not a major risk, uh, if not as big a risk as, as, as Russia. And then, of course, this is the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which up the ante week, of course, changed the perception of Russia, which was always considered as a primary adversary, but now, of course, considered even more so. So how can you have more extended, deeper, uh, more fundamental globalization when these two big economies, China, now by many measures, the number one economy in the world, and Russia, which is not such a big economy in terms of gross domestic product, but which is the major, major producer of not only fuel, which people know, major supplier of crude oil, natural gas, of course, to Europe, as we know, which is now suffering without it. But Russia is also the major producer of ammonia fertilizers and major producer of wheat. This is what Americans have missed. 40 years ago, Russians were desperately buying Russian wheat. But after the fall of the Soviet Union, the Russian agriculture finally got reorganized. And it is now Russia, not America, not Canada, not Australia, but Russia, who is the world's largest exporter of wheat on this mm. planet. And it will be so for foreseeable time. So how can you have a globalization when these important actors, Russia and China now, have this adversary and quote-unquote bad relationship with America and with European Union. So certainly these are the new important factors working against globalization. You, you talk about the drivers of globalization um, being not, not so much cheap labor, which I think is a perception that most people have, but yeah, access to educated, an educated workforce. Um, yeah. Particularly given the products that are being being produced. How is that going to change 
the dynamics of globalization in the short term and the long term? This cannot change very rapidly. If you have that what we call the fab, this fabrication factory for mm-hmm. microprocessors, it costs literally billions mm-hmm. to build. So you just cannot say, you know, I will build new ones. There is another thing in U.S. now: the movement to reshore the production of microchips. Biden signed another law about that. Well, that's all fine, really, but you cannot build a new microchip fabrication facility in six months or even a year, really, right? Uh, so again, this is now embedded in place. So we will not be able to reshore the microchip capacities from Taiwan and from China and from Japan mm-hmm. in a year or two or three. Again, it's a long-term process. So in a decade, yes, very substantial achievements could be done in seven, eight years or a decade, but certainly mm-hmm. not in two, three or four, five years. So if we have a shortage of uh, certain types of microchip today, which everybody is aware of, we will not solve that by setting up American manufacturing in next one, two or three years. The shortage will persist for a better part of the decade in some ways. So again, you know, uh, some of these things are much easier to do. But, you know, to find the alternate supply of crude oil or natural gas, as difficult as it is, it's much easier than to find an alternate supply of microchip. That is very difficult to do. So, 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 what is your what is your advice to companies that are trying to plan? I mean, you, you make the point in your book that we can't expect to see change for two to three decades. Big change, incremental change, obviously, we'll continue to see. Yeah. But, but given all of the uncertainty, the uncertainty we know, the uncertainty that we certainly don't, but need to be prepared to address. I'll, I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, how, how do you advise? businesses um, who are grappling with these uncertainties, that are trying to plan their own uh, supply chain efficiencies, that are trying to create better economics across their own financial and, and, and you know, physical supply chains. What are, the, what are the things they should be looking out for and how should they be incorporating those things into their planning? Well, in principle, I am no kind of you know, uh, simple uh, thinker in the sense, you know, let's do everything at home. But this is the advice where we should start with. Let's not forget that what made American economy great was its tremendous diversity. There was a time when America made absolutely everything. And it may not make sense to make absolutely everything because you may buy it uh, you know, more cheaply, more efficiently made somewhere else. Really. But certainly it doesn't make sense to decline your economic complex. This is a new measure. Uh, there, there are several interesting uh, research projects on this website where you can uh, follow the country's economic complexity. The more economically complex the country is, the more resilient it is in many ways. And especially U.S., which has the advantage of having its own now energy supply, having tremendous amount of natural gas, uh, crude oil, uh, uh, hydro capacity. So and potential to develop nuclear. So America is a rare country which has the energy supply, which China doesn't, but China is the biggest importer of energy in the world, and has the capacity to have all kinds of domestic manufacturing. And this is the problem. America has given up on so much made in America. You know, the statistics after China joined the World Trade Organization, America lost at least 7 million jobs and they were good paying uh, jobs uh, uh, which basically had to shut down of uh, many one industry towns and uh, cities in America. So uh, this is uh, not generally applicable 
other advice, uh, not, you know, 100% too, but this is where I would always start that if you can do it at home, where you have the control of what you are doing, really do it at home. Don't rely. Uh, that, the best example is uh, when, when COVID started, you know, that most of the personal protective equipment was made as, as far as the rubber things in Malaysia and other things, plastic things from China. So America is the major producer of hydrocarbons, but it couldn't make plastic gloves and uh, plastic guns and had to airship. So the all air traffic was down. People were not flying, but there were these massive, uh, uh, big uh, uh, airplanes uh, flying to China and bringing uh, personal protective equipment for American doctors and nurses. Uh, certainly, it was the best example of uh, what shouldn't be done, how it's so much better to do it at home. What, what do you think is the the dynamic, though, that is going to be now created when a co- major economies move from production economies to consumption economies, which is, which is, I think, what you're saying is that over time, we're going to see the Chinese economy and the U.S. economy almost flip in terms of, in terms of their position today, in, in terms of being producers versus consumers of, of products. Well, you know, the consumption is inevitable. This is the modern economy is based on mass consumption, right? That's, that's the driver. Uh, plus, of course, is the government spending now. Uh, I always, when people tell me, you know, uh, whatever, the price manipulation, whatever, people don't realize that not the whole global economy is manipulated, right? You know, as I said at the beginning of the talk, you know, half a trillion dollar bill, which was to be one trillion dollar bill. Uh, the economists of half uh, a century ago would be aghast, you know, the government now toss around uh, trillions of dollars a day, and then one person can say, I will vote or will not vote, and influences the movement of uh, half a trillion dollars. It's just tr- truly what's called a new uh, monetary theory. I'm just, you know, astounded by that. But anyway, you cannot get away uh, from consumption, but uh, there are, of course, it shows the limits. When you have the country, which is a, a, a true consumption economy like U.S. now, which is running permanent deep deficits, really, and which has been losing some well-paying jobs, well, you know, you can you can carry on. You can keep doing it for for you know another decade or two. But what you will be losing, you'll be losing the social cohesion of the country. You will be losing a contract between the people who govern and uh, who are governed. And it's been shown already in America that clearly you know this over reliance on uh, on uh, foreign uh, production certainly has weakened social contracts in America. And this is something people should be worried about. It's just not simply say you know we'll print. More more money and will bring more stuff from China. That doesn't solve the social problem. What would you do if you were running a company, a, a multinational company that has, you know, major supply chain issues where they're trying to figure out where to allocate funds, where they're allocate investment capital to build new facilities, and you have a board asking you for your three-year plan? How would you answer the board? What would you suggest that company do? Increasingly difficult because the major economies are now also uncertain. Let's say, you know, 30 years ago, you would say, oh, invest in Japan, right? Japan was uh, well-governed, uh, steady, uh, 
big consuming society, people are buying everything. But as you know, Japanese economy has been in downfall since 1990s. Not quite downfall, but you know, has been on the way out. And by the way, people don't realize the Japanese population, we just had in Japan the record decline last year, 700,000 people, population decline by nearly a million people in one year. So uh, investing in Japan, that's not quite questionable. Investing in China is becoming more questionable because of the political equation, political problems, right? Investing in India, India is now certainly you know, hoping to be second China, but there are many problems in terms of uh, Indian bureaucracy, uh, Indian, uh, uh, of course, there is obviously the conflict with Pakistan. Uh, investing in this EU, as we know now, EU is in a fundamental trouble. It was in troubles economically before the uh, Russia cut off uh, gas and oil, uh, all these supply problems. So it was all sort of cohesion problems. EU is still performing reasonably well economically, but as this political social cohesion problem. So these, these, these formerly major uh, targets of investment, uh, Japan, China, EU, all of them are now questionable or underperforming or not performing at all. And of course, there is a tremendous need of everything, more of everything in Africa. Africa has a tremendous consumption potential. In Africa, people could increase the consumption of basic things fivefold, tenfold before they reach the level which we have reached half a century ago. So the potential for increased consumption in richer parts of Africa now already is tremendous, but it's the great political instability, as is still in Latin America, including Brazil, the biggest country, including the Mexico. So I don't think we have been in a situation <laughs> with so much uncertainty, so many problems, and uh, so much simply, you know, the basic unsettled uh, situation as we are right now for a long, long time. That certainly doesn't sound like a very good, <laughs> a, 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 a very, a very, a very positive picture of of the global no, economy. But, 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 question, what would you advise yeah, me? What would you right write? now, I would honestly say, you know, that uh, every advice I would give might be a bad advice, you know, because the Russian situation is not going to get settled anytime soon, right? Russia is bent to achieve its goals in Ukraine and it may take it two years. This this is a war which may, after it's been going since, since 2014, people forget that war was opened quietly by the annexation of Crimea in 2014. So already they are on the eighth year of that war and may make it for us eight years, right? And China, when you look at the Chinese propaganda now, the way Chinese are talking about the U.S. and the way U.S. is now talking about China, this, these are not two great friends uh, sitting around the table. And of course, EU, I don't have to tell you about EU and, you know, the situation in Brazil and situation in South Africa. So yes, the, the, there are always problems with, you know, this part or that part of the world. But now there doesn't seem to be a part of the world uh, besides Australia, which economically is very small, just a big exporter of uh, iron ore and natural gas, there doesn't seem to be an area which you would say, this is stable, this is quiet, this is up and up, we should go there. I just can't think of any area of the world right now. All right, let, let, let me try to move us to something that has a little bit more of a, po <laughs> of a, positive, a positive connotation. You, you mentioned earlier that, you know, we did a lot of things before the, the innovations that investments in technology um, have provided. And, and of course, you're, you're right. We were able to fly in airplanes before there was AI technology that allows um, planes to be flown without the, the manual intervention of pilots and so forth. But you have to agree that that technology has made a lot of what we used to do much better, more efficient, um, and, and certainly provides more access to more people 
who are able to get things like smartphones at a price that allows them to then connect to the internet, which allows them to connect to services that are very vital for people living all over the world. Where, where do you see technology having the opportunity to have the greatest impact with the, the, the challenges that we see today in managing our supply chains and, 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 and addressing the issues of globalization that you just spoke of? Uh, again, you know, it's always like that. It's always like, it's never like this, never like this, it's always like that. <laughs> so what we have, of course, you know, that, uh, let's start with what you mentioned. It's, it's really important that we got this access. Everybody has an access. But what access, what personal, unlimited personal access to information, what is as man, is the almost unlimited rise of mass scale disinformation, lies, and uh, absolute, you know, I mean, I'm lacking adjectives to describe what you know very well. America is full of it. So is China. So is Russia, right? And of course, government sees it. And now not only in the US, but the governments join and governments get into business of disinformation, including the effects on your election and so on. Really. So, you know, I'm always a guy who uh, people accuse me of being a pessimist, but uh, I think I'm a realist, you know. So <laughs> as much as like, uh, I, my, I like my access to, uh, you know, Writing my books, it's been great, you know. I had to run around the library so I crazy, running up and down the stairs all day long. Now I sit in my room and I can access every book in France and every book in Library of Congress uh, mm-hmm. from my computer. That's great, really. But on the other hand, you know, I, I've never been, I don't have Facebook, I will never tweet, but if I will go on those things and I would read a thing, you know, I think I would get a heart attack in five minutes. <laughs> the level, the scale of disinformation is just, well, you know, you know, it's just true. It's just, it's mind boggling. Mm-hmm. The, the mountains of lies which are out there is just incredible, right? And of course, it was about AI, you know, uh, I would argue as many uh, people who spend their life in, in AI, <laughs> that we still don't have any AI. We have just simply, you know, better and better programming, being able to take care of uh, more and more learning and more and more memory. But, uh, you know, uh, we are, we are, long, this, 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 this will be a debate for several days, you know. Anyway, we are long away, long, long way away from any true AI. We have just, you, do you notice that in, by 2015, everybody was telling you by this time, all cars will be self-driving, right? They'll be sleeping and reading in their cars, right? Where are all those self-driving cars? Can you tell me? Well, they're on their way. Um, if, if you if you ask uh, Elon Musk, they're uh, they're 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 no, around but, today. But 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 I take your point about you know you, you can always look at the negative. But if you think about the access, well, I found you over the internet, so <laughs> so there yeah. so there's that so there's that positive. But if you think about the access to you know services like healthcare and banking services and you know and 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 things that are critical for people to be able to access that that absent a digital yes, platform right. and a device consumers wouldn't be able to do i mean that that certainly is innovation and that's progress yeah, no, absolutely. It's especially for people, uh, as I'm getting older, I appreciate this thing. Fortunately, I can still go and run around, but uh, for people are housebound, right? Having access, they are able to order groceries, they are able to do their banking. I'm not knocking it down in the least. I appreciate all of these things and then I value them and, uh, and we should be even better than we are doing, you know. But uh, let's not forget that there is another underlying thing that all of this, this is a system which is running on electricity and it runs only as long as I have a reliable electricity supply. And uh, the simple fact is that our supply is not as reliable as it could be. Um, 
you know, this is one thing which most Americans don't realize. America is the only major economy in the world uh, which does not have a national electricity grid. Uh, Europe has a grid, uh, China has grid, Russia has grid, uh, weaker and uh, slower and, you know, less advanced economies around the world have national grids, but America doesn't have a grid. And the argument is too big. It's just simply not an argument. China is equally big and it has a grid, really. And Russia is even bigger and it has a national grid, really. So if you have more interconnections, you have more reliability, obviously. If something goes down locally and you are totally, like Texas, right? Texas has own grid. If something goes wrong in Texas, Texas has hardly any interconnection with the rest of the country. Then everything goes down in Texas, really. So let's not forget that the reliability of these marvelous services, which I appreciate and like to have access to, depends on the reliability of electricity supply. And the reliability of electricity supply has not been getting uh, much better over the years. This is something which we have to solve at the barway. This is the rock on which it all stands, the reliability of electricity supply. Yeah, you, you do make that point in, in your book. You, you talk about voluntary risk and involuntary risk. And, and I think one of the interesting points that you made when talking about both of those is that the way that businesses and consumers tend to underestimate and overestimate those risks. They, under, they underestimate the severity of the voluntary risks and they overestimate the severity of the involuntary risks. Do I have that right? Yeah, this is usually, this is this is something which is almost impossible to cure or change. Or we are wired like that, and it depends on our experience and everything. So, what do we do? And plus, of course, it's not only voluntary. Always, you know, absolutely, you know, voluntary people will do absolutely crazy things. Right? They will film themselves. They will they will hold a, a, a cell phone in one hand steering hand in the other, and they will film themselves going 200 miles per hour on a highway to post it on internet, right? This is absolutely crazy, right? But they will jump from whatever. They will jump from fixed structures and they will dive deep and whatever. But voluntary, so that's a voluntary risk which people just take just like no problem at all, right? They are willing to kill themselves and that's fine, right? Involuntary risk, if you will tell people, right, the classic examples, we will build a nuclear power station 20 kilometers away from you, they will say, over my dead body, it will kill me, it will radiate me, which it will, it will not either, you know. No American nuclear power station uh, radiated and killed anybody within 20 kilometers. So, but that's how it is. But there is an even deeper thing to it, you know, that uh, it's not only this voluntary, involuntary, it's uh, short-term and long-term. This is no more uh, fundamental than voluntary, involuntary. We are tremendously discounting the future. This is why it will be very, very difficult to deal with problems like global warming. If there is an immediate uh, threat, if they will tell you, you know, you've got to do this and, you know, within 24 hours, whatever, we are pretty good. We, you know, we mobilize and we react and uh, forget about the day, you know, on a basis of weeks, months, whatever. We can mobilize, we can react. But uh, if you think of the fact that even if we will start investing in cutting down global warming situation very severely right now, the first people will benefit because there is so much of the global warming already in the pipe, so to speak. The atmosphere is already warming up. So the first people will benefit from our actions today. Maybe people born around 2050. It's very difficult to get people invest into this. It's very difficult for people to value 2017 the same day value 2022. So that's another problem besides voluntary and involuntary, you know, that our, we simply, all of us are profoundly discounting the future, right? 
One one final question. We just have a, a few a few seconds left. You, you talk about this book as being the product of your life's work. <clears throat> as, as a result of writing it, what did you learn about your life's work that perhaps wasn't as obvious before you wrote it? The facts, facts, facts. You know, we used to be much more fact-bound. Uh, uh, we are now becoming, as I say, almost, you know, fact-free or post-factual society. People say something like, you know, uh, you mentioned Musk in 2017. He said, by 2022, I will be flying to Mars. Nobody's holding him to it, you know. So people can now say absolute nonsense. To, to most of us who knew something about engineering and flying in space, we knew that it's absolute nonsense, that it's impossible to, to fly to Mars in 2022, right, you know. But most people, it actually gets widely reported. It's like, oh, Mars is flying to Mars, whatever. So, you know, we should be just simply, you know, Two and two is still four, really. It never will be five and a half, really. So this is what's the, the most important thing, which I knew before, really. Facts, 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 numbers, 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 realities. The nature bats last. You cannot escape natural laws, you know. They, uh, once you use energy, it's out there. You cannot you cannot put the genie back into the bottle once you use it, you know. And mass is a mass. When I have to move a ton from China to Los Angeles, it's a ton. It will never be half a ton, really. So uh, fundamentals, 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 not wishful thinking, numbers and facts. Professor Schmiel, thanks so much for a fascinating conversation, a very thought-provoking way to open our day. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye now. That was great to hear. And exactly as you said, a very thought-provoking way to start the day. And I'm excited to see what comes next. So we hope that you guys are ready to go as well for our Supply Chain Meets FinTech event. We're going to take a quick commercial break, and then we'll be right back in a few minutes with two fireside chats to get us kicked off. (laughs) 